0: Please check out our website, www.heritagebaptist.co.za. Well, good morning. We have a rich, full Lord's Day today, so uh, we're going to jump right into the text. We're in uh, First Chronicles chapter sixteen. We're uh, going through Chronicles. So just to remind you, last week we saw how David uh, successfully brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. A few chapters earlier we saw how he had failed because he had not uh, inquired of the Lord, he had not sought the Lord, he had not obeyed the Lord in, in God's prescribed way of carrying the Ark of the Covenant. But he had learned his lesson and we know that that's one of the things that set David apart from Saul is that he was repentant. And teachable, uh, we saw that they brought it to Jerusalem, and now in this chapter, that that day is still continuing. Uh, the people are still rejoicing. The people are still gathered there. So, from verses four through seven, and then at the end of the chapter, thirty-seven through forty-two, uh, we see that David uh, divides the the priesthood and the Levitical tribes into different. Uh, teams to do certain things uh, with the Ark of the Covenant and specifically worship. And so he sets up different groups to play the lyre and the trumpet and all the musical instruments as we saw last week. Great rejoicing and joy and uh, a desire of ours here is to see all the instruments being used to praise God to help us sing better, not to dominate, not to take over not to drown out our singing but to help us in our worship of the Lord to make it rich and and uh, glorious as all our voices combine to to honor the Lord and there's a wonderful picture here of uh, what God's people are called to when it comes to to worship. David also sets up the priests in Gibeon, uh, Gibeon's another city in Israel where they were still doing the sacrifices. But the ark of the covenant had been moved to jerusalem and so the teams are sort of divided between those two two sections and so david really starts to structure the worship of god and establish uh, teams musical instruments we're going to see later he establishes choirs uh, and so he brings order to the worship of god and that's what god calls us to to worship him in a orderly way but in between and that's really what we're going to focus on verses 8 to 36 comprise one long psalm of praise. And so David, uh, on this momentous occasion, on this day of bringing the Ark of the Covenant successfully to Jerusalem, David, uh, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, praises the Lord. And uh, these, these words also come from several other psalms, Psalm 105, Psalm 106, and Psalm 96, but they are changed slightly. But the main focus with this psalm is The focus on the response of God's people to God, and God as the covenant-keeping God, the faithful God, and Israel as His covenant community, and that they are to trust Him and how God has already preserved them historically. Remember the original audience? They were those who had been in captivity in Babylon. They now under Cyrus are allowed to return home to Israel, but they come back in dribs and drabs. It's a very small number that returns. They return to dust and ashes, to ruins, to their homes broken down, to their temple destroyed. They return to enemies surrounding them. And so they're a small group, a small band of people uh, feeling threatened, feeling alone, feeling isolated. And the chronicler is trying to encourage them. And he's going to do that through this this psalm. And so let's let's start in verse 8. The psalm begins with a whole lot of imperatives. Imperative is a command. Um, God's people are commanded to do these things. And so I want you to see uh, as we go through, I'll point them out. So they're commands for us as well. The, the psalms and the songs in Scripture are for us to sing and they are for, to teach us and to show us how to worship God and what we are to do. So the first thing David says, verse eight: "Oh, give thanks to the Lord. That's a command, to give thanks to the Lord. Uh, we are told in the New Testament to give thanks in all things. It's a remarkable statement. An incredible statement, you might say, you say, surely it doesn't mean give thanks in all things, even the bad things that happen. Yes, even the, the bad things that happen, we are to give thanks. If we, if we are believers and we trust that God is our Father and that He loves us, we are promised this, that everything that happens in our life is working for our good. And so we can even give thanks for the the bad things in our life because we know God is using that for our good. As we saw in 2 Corinthians, even the terrible things that happen are often there to keep us humble. Uh, If everything went smoothly, we would drift away from the Lord. We would feel that we don't really need Him. And so it's a command. As God's people, we are to give thanks. Uh, Notice Lord there in your Bibles is in capitals. All the letters are in capitals. Every time you see Lord in the psalm, you'll see it's in capitals. Uh, What that means is, as opposed to just capital L and then small O I D, is that this is God's covenant name, Uh, Yahweh or Jehovah, we don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but that's the idea, it's God's name. It's much more intimate, it's it's the name that God's people call Him by. As opposed to Lord, which means, uh, the Hebrew word is Adonai, means Master. And so that again highlights that that, that God's name occurs 16 times in this psalm. The chronicler is saying, we are God's people, He is our God, and that is true for us if you're a Christian. They are told to call upon His name. This is another command. We are to call upon the name of the Lord. We are to cry out to Him. We are to, we'll see later on, we are to bring our petitions to Him. Uh, The name of the Lord. We've seen that phrase already in Chronicles. It says the Ark of the Covenant. That's the place where the name of the Lord dwelt. It's the throne of God. The name of the Lord refers to his character. When the Lord Jesus said if you ask anything in my name, it will be given you. It wasn't just a blank check that you can, you know, ask for, uh, you know, a five-story mansion or a holiday home in Switzerland or wherever, you would like to Hawaii. I always felt the Lord's calling me to be a missionary in Hawaii. <laughs> uh, that's not the idea. It's not whatever you lust after, whatever you want, you can, just, you can just add Jesus' name to it. That phrase means in alignment with His character, with who He is. And If you know God, then you wouldn't be asking for those things. You would be asking for your legitimate needs. You would be asking for the desires that God gives you, Lord, help me to grow in holiness. You think God hears that prayer? Think the Lord honors prayers like that? Definitely. not always the way we intended. We even sing that song by Newton, that haunting hymn, I ask the Lord, but he doesn't always answer the way we expect. The way he, he, he causes us to grow in holiness is often by destroying us and destroying our sinful desires, isn't that right, by humbling us by breaking us down. But those are the prayers, call upon the name of the Lord. Cry out to Him to grow in holiness, to to save family members, to provide your needs. The Puritans used to say this, that God is fond of His own handwriting. What they meant by that is pray God's Word back to Him. Pray the Scriptures back to Him. Pray His promises back to Him. Call upon his name say, Lord, you have promised to sustain me. You have promised to preserve me. Please do this. Next command, make known his deeds among the peoples. And so we are to evangelize. Uh, We are to to proclaim, we'll see later on, we are to tell of the things that the Lord has done. Uh, Of course, that's the gospel, but... uh, I think a powerful way of doing this is to use your testimony, how the Lord has worked in your own life. It is wonderful to see in the book of Acts that Paul's testimony I think is recorded three or four times. Uh, We do live in an age where uh, people's personal experiences are, are validated. People listen to some things like that. Uh, they're quite happy to reject tradition or objective truth and those things, but they're much hard, it's much harder for them to reject someone saying, my experience is this. This is what my life used to be like. This is where I used to try and find satisfaction, but it was empty and hollow, but I heard the message of Jesus Christ and He has changed my life. And so you tell of His wondrous deeds, how He has worked in In history, in the past, in the Gospel, in His death, burial and resurrection, and in your own life. Verse 9, sing to Him, sing praises to Him. God's people are commanded to sing, to make a joyful noise to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works, there it is again, glory in His holy name. The idea there is to boast. That's the idea of glory. To boast. Again, His holy name, His character. Boast in God's character. Boast in who He is. Learn the attributes of God, the character of God, who He is. David then says, Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Verse 11 says, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Uh, Those of you who've been coming to this whole series will know that that's a major theme in the Book of Chronicles: to seek the Lord. That's why God killed Saul because he did not seek the Lord. We see that David is different; he seeks the Lord. And here again, it comes out: let the hearts of those who seek the Lord. This is the idea here: is that it's an ongoing activity. Those who are seeking. The Lord will know joy. It may be, so don't absolutize the statement, there are various reasons why, uh, and experiences and difficulties and, and, and all kinds of things why, why it might be there's a loss of joy in your life at the moment. But let me say this, one of them might be you're not seeking the Lord. You're not seeking Him. You're not longing to have an undivided heart wholly committed to Him. You're not seeking him through his word and through the preaching of his word and through fellowship. Saying, Lord, how do you want me to live in, in this situation? How do I want to grow in holiness? I want to put off this sin. Let me bring it to the light. Let me confess it. Because here it's saying, let those who seek the Lord know rejoicing. Seek the Lord and his strength, seek his presence continually. And then, verse 12, the command comes to remember. Remember the wondrous works that He has done, His miracles and the judgments He uttered. Uh, We're told to remember again in verse 15. And so, twice David tells us to remember, and as we've said before, remembrance is critical to the Christian life. One commentator says this, remembering in the Old Testament includes acting upon that which is recalled, and is much more than a purely intellectual exercise. And that's still true of the New Testament. Uh, we are going to uh, enjoy communion later on, and that's, that's God. The Lord Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And if communion is nothing more than an intellectual exercise for you, a simple, okay, I remember Jesus died, okay, I've done that, tick that box. You haven't obeyed Scripture. You haven't understood what remembrance means. It means to act upon that. It means that as we leave this place, you have determined to act differently, to put off and to put on. And so it's the same here. Proclaim the wondrous deeds. Tell the wondrous deeds of the Lord. Remember the wondrous deeds. Why does the Lord keep telling us to, to rem- Why do we have communion? Why are we to do it regularly? Because we forget We forget, and when I say that I don't just mean intellectually, intellectually even we sometimes forget, but we forget to act upon the wondrous things that God has done. And of course for the New Testament believer, the Old Testament believers as they thought on the wondrous acts of God, we'll see it, it's really creation, the creation of the nation of Israel through the patriarchs, and the exodus, the deliverance from slavery those are the mighty deeds and acts that they would remember but for us as new testament believers we rejoice in all those things but for us there is something far greater that is calvary that is the incarnation god becoming flesh living a sinless life dying a shameful death in our in our place those are the wondrous mighty works that he has done Conquering death, rising again on the third day. And so it's a phrase you'll hear often here, we are to preach the gospel to ourselves. Uh, one, one friend of mine, he, he says this, he's a pastor, he likes to say this, and so I found it really helpful. Uh, stop listening to yourself and start speaking to yourself. Okay? Stop listening to yourself and start speaking to yourself. What he means by that is, when you listen to yourself, what happens? It's the lies of the devil, isn't that right? Uh, I don't need God's people, I don't, or I'm, I'm too bad, uh, I can't come to church, um, I, I, you know, it's, I've messed up today, how can I read the Bible? All of those things, we listen to those things, we listen to those voices condemning us, unworthy, or else voices that are telling us we're so amazing, we're so full of ourselves either way, we turn away from the Lord, whichever side it's on. Stop listening to yourself. Start talking to yourself. Isn't that what David does? My soul, why are you passed down? Okay? He starts talking to himself. Okay? Not out loud and in public, you might get taken away. You know. <laughs> in a padded room somewhere, we'll come visit you. Uh, you understand what we're saying? You're th- talk to yourself preach the gospel start knowing the promises of God putting out those that wrong thinking remember what he has done remember his mighty deeds remember Calvary remember the resurrection David goes on to say well it's not just to remember what Christ has done but it's to remember who you are your identity Look at verse 13. O offspring of Israel, his servant, sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. What is he saying? He's saying to Israel as they gathered there, you, you need to know who you are. And the chronicler is saying to this, this little uh, ragged bunch of, of misfits, you need to know who you are. You're the chosen ones, you're the descendants of Jacob. You are God's people. That hasn't changed. That's the same for us today. Most, if not all, of our issues and sins uh, at root, are, are we don't find our identity, our fullness in, in who we are in Christ. But the Scripture says, you are, if you're a Christian, you are complete in Him. You don't need the approval of anyone else. You don't need that career, that car, the Armani suit, the person on your arm, to be complete. And and hear me, this is not just, you know, you'll hear this on Oprah as well, okay? This is different. This is not because you're so amazing, because you've just got it all together, I don't need a man, I don't need a woman, I don't need anyone, I'm complete. No, nonsense. This is because you're complete in Christ and that humbles you. It removes that pride and arrogance. I'm completing Christ. It doesn't make you arrogant towards other people. I don't need you. It humbles you to say, I love you. I don't find my, uh, I don't validate myself in what you think of me. Remember what Paul says? Paul says, I, I care very little what other people think of me. It's what Christ thinks of me. But did that, did that make Paul arrogant and, and uh, tyrannical? No humbled him and he served. Who are we in Christ? We are descendants of Abraham, Paul says in Galatians. If you're a believer, you are elect. You are chosen by God. Now maybe some of you hear those words and you, you start worrying, am I really elect? Am I really chosen? How do I know if I'm elect? I'll well, listen to what uh, one uh, professor at Westminster Seminary, R. Scott Clark, said. Am I elect? That's the kind of introspection against which Calvin warned us. We never ask, Am I elect? It's a wrong question. We ask, Do I believe? That's the question. Only the elect come to faith. So if I believe, it's because I'm elect. If you have entrusted your life to Jesus Christ, you are elect. That's all you need to do. Do I believe? Not the, not the false faith of, of the devil. This is an entrusting your whole life, a commitment to Christ that results in seeking to obey Him. So, not a inter, Again, not an intellectual assent. Yes, I believe there is a God. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe He did die. I believe He rose again. Many people believe that and they're going to hell. They've never repented and entrusted their whole lives to, to that truth. So don't go around asking, Am I elect? Ask, Do I believe? If you believe, then you are elect. If I don't believe, then I should repent and believe. But to sit around and ask, Am I elect? is a path to futility, frustration, doubt, and uncertainty. And then he says, It's not healthy. It is not healthy. You begin to become introspective. You're just looking, you become self absorbed. Rather, do I believe? Am I seeking to fight sin? Not perfection. But, I, but and am I fighting it? Am I, am, I, am I seeking to grow in all different ways? Using the means of grace and all of these things? And you can have confidence that you belong to, to God. And you are perfectly loved. How is it that I, we can be secure in our identity? because we know that the Lord loves us and that He laid down His life for us and that we are His and that He will never lose us. David continues, verse 14, He is the Lord our God. I love that. He's our God. Okay? He's not a God or just far away or anything like that. He is our God. He belongs to us, to His people. His judgments are in all the earth. And then verse 15, remember. His covenant forever. So, David is telling Israel, remember who you are, and then remember what he has done. Remember that God has made a covenant. And communion is a picture exactly of that, we are remembering the new covenant. You will see that when I read the, the words of institution later on. Remember his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham." His sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed as a statute to Jacob, as an everlasting covenant to Israel. See, this word is repeated over and over again. Covenant is much more than an agreement. Uh, Palmer Robertson says it's a bond in blood. Yeah. It's not simply a handshake, it's not when you go to, you know, you get a new job and you you to and fro over your contract. Covenants in Scripture are unilateral. God comes and says this is the way it is. Okay? God didn't sit down with Adam and discuss, what would you like, which, which trees would you like to eat from, Okay, well, yeah, you, you want three, I can, I can offer you one, no. Abraham wasn't sort of consulted, Abraham would you like to be chosen, would you like to be the father of the nation of Israel, are you interested, uh, no. God declares, God comes, God chooses, God de- states, this is the way it is. And so it is with the new covenant. And we say bond and blood because the consequences of breaking the covenant are death. It's a bond in blood. Now what's so amazing about the new covenant is who dies? Who sheds their blood? Christ. Who breaks the covenant? Us. (laughs) Who kept it perfectly? Him. But who dies? He dies. In our place. The Lord made a covenant with Abraham, with the patriarchs, with Isaac, with Jacob, saying to them, to you I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance. Remember, the children of Israel have just come back to Canaan. And so, again, they've been reminded God has made these covenant, this covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They can be encouraged. And for us, when we come to the New Testament, it goes way beyond the land of Canaan, isn't that right? The Lord Jesus doesn't say in the Sermon on the Mount, the meek will inherit Israel, the meek will inherit the land of Canaan. He says, the meek will inherit the earth. God's people will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. This was just a shadow, a type, a picture of the absolute conquest of God's people, of the absolute victory of God. Verse 19, "When you were few in number and of little account, just a, just one family, a few descendants. They were nothing, just like the, 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 the pilgrims who've come back to Israel. Nothing fancy, nothing great, a small number. And sojourners in it, verse 20, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people. Verse 21, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. And so he has the context, you know, the title for the sermon, Don't Touch the Lord's Anointed. Uh, use that because it's a common phrase that uh, false pastors like to use uh, whenever someone criticizes them. Okay. Why are you buying another Bentley? Uh, don't touch the Lord's anointed. Um, and it's totally out of context and, and it's, 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 it's blasphemous. Uh, the context here is it's the patriarchs. Those that God called to establish the nation of Israel, to establish His people, those that He made a covenant with, they're the the ones that the Lord protected. You can go and see in Scripture, even when when Abraham is is being cowardly and not, not honoring his wife, the Lord still protected them. That's the context. None of these guys are patriarchs or anything to do with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the context. You could secondarily apply it to, the. remember I said to you last week, we're all prophets, priests, and kings. Small letters. We're all called to intercede. We're all called to lead in different spheres and serve in different spheres. We're all called to share God's word in different spheres, in different ways. And so there is a warning to the world that persecutes God's people. If you want to say who's anointed? Well, all of God's people are anointed because they're in the anointed one, Jesus Christ. And so those who seek to destroy the church, there will be consequences. Verse 23, another command, Sing to the Lord all the earth, tell of His salvation from day to day. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous works among all the peoples. And so really reiterating what we saw in the first few verses, that God's people are to proclaim, to tell these things, to remember them, to sing, to praise. But why must we do this? Look at verse 25. You see there's a cause there, for... So that's why, why why must we do this? For great is the Lord. Why are we to go and tell His works? Why are we to praise Him? Why are we to call upon His name? Because He is great. He is awesome in the the right way, that word is overused and used for for silly things. The sweet is awesome. And so it's lost its weight. But, but God is truly awesome. We should be full of awe at our God. He is greatly to be praised and He is to be held in awe above all gods. All the false gods. Not just the f- false religions and their false gods, but all the false gods of the Western secularism, money and sport and career, sexual pleasure and comfort, all the gods of secular humanism. Our God is to be in awe, held in awe above all of these false gods. Verse 26, For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The true and living God is the Creator God. And so yeah, David goes back to creation. God is to be praised because He is the Creator. He made everything. Why would you serve a God who can't do anything, who didn't create the heavens and the earth? Serve the true and living God who created all things. Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. Verse 28, Ascribe, another command, ascribe to the Lord, O clans of the peoples. Ascribe means attribute to, and you can see it in the next line. A tribute to the Lord, glory and strength. We should be telling, we should be saying, Our God is glorious and mighty. He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. Verse 29. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Bring an offering and come before Him. So, as we saw last week, these were, they brought sacrifices. And... Uh, Hopefully, as you come week in, week out, you start to pick up the themes and you start to see how it applies to us. So remember, sacrifices, we don't kill animals anymore to impress God, we don't need to bring an animal to the Lord. What are we to do? We have to offer our bodies that have been sacrificed, Paul tells us. It's interesting, Paul says, this is your reasonable service, doesn't it make sense? How can you not give your whole life to a God like this? Majesty and splendor and power and might. Don't be a fool. What are you going to give your life to? Weak and petty things? Things that pass away? Things that we know, we know in our hearts they will not satisfy. Isn't it interesting? We you know you read those interviews with, with rich people and successful actors, people who've achieved. I've read interviews with Brad Pitt, interviews with Jim Carrey and others, and they say the same thing. I think Jim Carrey says, I wish everyone could be as famous as me and they could realize it doesn't make you happy. And Brad Pitt's saying, money doesn't satisfy, and we all think it will for me. Okay? I'll, I'll, you know, I'll be the anomaly, I'm happy to be the anomaly. <laughs> No, oh, we know it won't. Go and read Ecclesiastes. Okay? Go and read Solomon. who had the power and the wealth to do every, whatever his heart craved. Imagine whatever you imagine you could do. He could and he did. He tried everything and he says it's all vanity. It's all like chasing after the wind. Serve this God. Bring your life to this God, the true and living, the Creator God, who can truly satisfy. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Uh, If you have a King James, it says, the beauty of holiness, and I've always loved that phrase. There's various ways it could be interpreted, but I'm going to give you the way I like it. Okay. Holiness is not holiness is seen as a silly thing, you know. Don't, people people don't really glory. At, talk about it's 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 a negative. If you say, "Oh, that's a, that guy's really holy," that's not commendable, isn't it? Right in, in society today, there's even a phrase it used to be a holy roller, uh, holier than thou. It's not seen in a positive way, I and mean, maybe that's probably even in, in in your own experience when you see the word holy or holiness in the Bible. Maybe it doesn't connote beauty and, and wonder. Often if we talk about a holy person, we're talking about a self-righteous person. A person who goes around telling everyone how holy they are. But we need to recover this, this glorious term, the beauty of holiness. You know there's nothing more beautiful than a holy person. There's nothing more beautiful than Jesus Christ. Go and read the Gospels. That's holiness. See how beautiful it is. A holy man, a holy woman, a holy child. I'll tell you, it's not a, if, if you're thinking a self-righteous person, that's not holiness. That's unholy. Okay. That's hypocrisy, self-righteousness. A truly holy person, the fruit of the Spirit. A person who is kind and gentle thoughtful, loving, patient, has self-control, doesn't just blurt out everything that comes into their mouth, is not just impulsive when it comes to relationships. Holiness, the beauty of holiness, so we need to recover. We, we talk about beauty, truth, and goodness. We must find the things that God finds beautiful. Beautiful holiness must be beautiful to us. Okay. Tremble before Him, all the earth. Fear—that's a command. Tremble, fear. I was sent a message this week. Say, well. Pastors often say, fear the Lord, but they don't explain it. Uh, so, we, we try and explain it, as I understand it, because we tend to think, fear the Lord, and if we fear something, we run away from it. That's how we respond, right, rightly so. Okay? I run away from snakes, I run away from uh, you know, loud noises at night. Okay. I don't really. Uh, so you <laughs> I phone the security company. <laughs> Uh, But generally, if we fear something, we move away from it. That's not the fear in Scripture. The fear in Scripture pulls us towards God. And so I've used this illustration, and it's the most helpful illustration I've ever found of the person who, the surfer who wants to serve the big waves, or the mountain climber who wants to climb Everest or K2 or whatever. They fear the mountain, don't they? It is frightening. They could lose their lives. That mountain could kill them. But they—does it push them away? They're drawn towards it. And so it's the same. This fear draws us towards the Lord, but with awe and reverence. Verse thirty-one. See, when you, when you come to this God, it's not enough just for a few people to praise His name. It's not even enough for the whole world to praise His name. Verse 31 Let the heavens be glad, and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, The Lord reigns. Let the sea roar, and all that fills it. Let the field exult, and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for He comes to judge the earth. You see, our God is so great, the whole universe must praise Him, creation must praise Him, the sea must praise Him, the fields must praise Him, the trees must praise Him. And then we are to give thanks to the Lord again. Why? For He is good. The Hebrew here, the idea is pleasant, desirable. Why must we give thanks again the beauty, He is is pleasant, beautiful. For his steadfast love endures forever. My favorite attribute of the Lord, his chesed, his steadfast love. Uh, Other translations, his loyal love, his faithful love. Uh, It's repeated in verse 41 when it talks about those Uh, who are chosen and and, and are to give thanks to the Lord and it says for his steadfast love endures forever. How were the worship teams to, to praise God and how were they to think? Why were they to praise God? Because his steadfast love endures forever. And over and over again in Scripture especially the Old Testament and you can read Lamentations, the high point of Lamentations in the midst of despair and disaster and horrors unimaginable horrors He's able to remember the steadfast love of the Lord. That's what he does. He remembers God's character, his steadfast love. So let me say to you, whatever you're going through, if you're a child of God, God is never against his people. This is his character, his steadfast love. It doesn't wax or wane, it's not up or down. It is his His relentless, immovable, unchangeable commitment to His people, that He will love them forever, no matter what you've done. That's what's so scandalous about Christianity. Whatever sin you've committed, if you've repented and put your trust in Christ, His love is upon you forever. His steadfast love endures forever. And then come to the end, verse 35, say also, that's another command, Israel, God's people are to also say this to the Lord, save us, O God of our salvation. Here's the petitions, the cries to God. What are we to cry out to God? God save us. You're the God of our salvation. Lord Jesus, you're the only one who can save us. Remember what Peter said? Who else can we turn to? You have the words of eternal life. Where are you going to go? Maybe you feel at rock bottom. Maybe it just feels all darkness around you. Where else are you going to go? You can't go. There is no one else. There is only one God who saves. There is only one God who became flesh. and There is only one God who died and rose again on the third day. There is only one God who is coming back to judge the world in righteousness. There is nowhere else to go. Everything else is just vapor, mist, smoke. And gather and deliver us from among the nations. Doesn't that remind you? Whenever it's the way I'm wired. Whenever I see nations, I think Matthew 28. Okay, go and make disciples of all nations. Isn't that? Shouldn't that be our prayer, Lord? Deliver people from all the nations. Raise up more church planters. Raise up missionaries. Lord, we want to see people from all nations being saved by you, that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And then notice the response of God's people. Then all the people said, Amen, and praised the Lord. What a scene of joy these last two chapters. All of God's people praising God with all the instruments, rejoicing in His character and who they are in in Him. Amen. Let's, Let's pray. Oh Father, we thank You so much for this beautiful psalm. Uh, Father, often it can feel that we are just a, a small, insignificant group of people in this big world with billions of people, attacked on every side. But Lord, you will keep your people. We belong to you. You are a God who never stops loving your people. You've displayed that in the most powerful way by sending your own Son. And so, Father, we ask that you would work by your Spirit, that you would help us to be a people who praise you, who seek you, who proclaim your wonders. A people that know our identity, that we know who we are, that we're not trying to find affirmation in the lies of this world, but that we would know we are complete in you, Lord Jesus. so, Father, please do this wonderful work. And if there are any here who do not know you, that they would cry out to you, the God who can save. Give them repentance and faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.